Hello and welcome to the Exploring Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Krim. And on this show, we sit down with leaders within the healthcare space to really understand and explore the ideas, the strategies, and the companies that are shaping the future of healthcare um, so that we can be aware of these things and that we can help drive real change within the industry. And on this episode, I sit down with Nurse Deb Alt, who runs a medical management practice where she partners with employers of all sizes to help their employees find high quality healthcare at an affordable price. She brings a unique set of skills where she really understands the medical and the clinical side of things as well as the financial. And so if you're looking for insight into how to really control healthcare costs, really understand how we determine quality in healthcare, then this conversation is for you. And we'll go ahead and get started. Deb, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd start here uh, briefly. I, I think as we were prepping for the show, I think the kind of the origin story of AIM International is well documented and, and you, why you, you founded it and you got into the healthcare industry. But for those that aren't familiar, can you, uh, you know, give a short overview of, of what AIM International is and, and maybe even what uh, medical management is? Yeah, absolutely. So AIM was founded to develop custom medical management solutions for savvy self-funded employer-sponsored health plans. And so, as you all know, I'm a nurse by background and training, but I also have a master's in business with a minor in math and statistics. And so, as I was contemplating building this company, I went to a handful of employers that I had known for a very long time um, and said, listen, guys, we speak the same language. We go to the same conferences. Why have you never become a customer of any of the companies that I work with? And they all gave us some version of the same story. They said, Deb, you come in here with product red, white, blue. Listen, we've been self-funded since the 70s. We know that we need fuchsia or we need purple or we need magenta. And I said, okay. And they said, if I'm going to go with a no name, in other words, a non-buka, right? It's going to have to be for some very, very solid reasons because nobody ever gets fired for hiring IBM right? So if I'm going to leave the BUCA environment, I'm going to have to do it. And I'm not going to agree to shoehorn our group into those products and services. So the light bulb went off and I said, well, what if I build a custom solution? What if I build purple? And they said, well, if you can do that, then it makes it worth getting out of that IBM scenario, right? So we can see the merit of doing that, taking that risk. And so that's what we did. We had a handful of customers that came on very early. What we learned, though, is that that customization at that point in time simply wasn't scalable, right? The technology to support it didn't exist. And you can train a nurse on maybe four or five custom things. But when you start getting more than that, like we're right now today, 350 custom plans, there's no way that one nurse can memorize all that. So we had to do all of that technology building and process building and training building. And so about five years ago is when it really started to take off. But that's why people come to us, because they know they can build a custom solution for their self-funded health plan that's going to address the needs and the culture within their own organization. As far as what is medical management, you know, it depends on who you ask. Just like every other term in our industry, that terminology has been bastardized and every person has their own definition. Um, there are some authorities on it, like URAC has a definition, CMSA has a definition, NCQA has a definition, and they all vary, but they all have the same common themes. Uh, my definition, which again is widely different than a lot of other people's, 
is a medical professional coming alongside a patient and handholding them through the two most cumbersome ecosystems in the universe, the healthcare delivery system. So what care am I going to get? When am I going to get it? Where am I going to go to get it? Where's the best place? Is this the thing that's actually going to cure my condition? Do the benefits of this procedure or service outweigh the risk of this procedure or service? Is this the gold standard of care, right? Is this the best thing? And the health plan system, oh my golly, is this going to bankrupt me, my family, my employer in the process? How do I get everything that I need and not have all of those negative financial repercussions? Or worse yet, right, we have a lot of employers that have employees who, um, from a socioeconomic standpoint, are already financially struggling, right? And so, you know, the average American has, what, 800 bucks in lifetime savings. And so you saddle them with a $5,000 deductible. Are they going to go and get medical care? Or are they going to wait until they drop over and somebody else calls 911 and they get transported to a not so great hospital because it's the closest one. And then they end up in ICU getting, eh, okay, kind of care, but not the best care. Right? And then that becomes financially devastating to everybody, right? The healthcare providers who are trying to collect that $5,000 deductible and they're never gonna get blood out of that turnip, right? It's just not gonna happen. So then they get frustrated because they have all these uncollected medical debts. The employer who now has hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical claims that could have been prevented and the patient who got mediocre care and isn't recovering as fast as they could or should or would, or better yet, we could have avoided it, right? So. If you can put medical professionals, and I keep saying that medical professionals, because a lot of medical management models use non-clinical people, and I'm pretty adverse to that, right? If you put medical professionals with the right tools and resources, good evidence-based criteria, good understanding of the financial side of healthcare, and you marry together that clinical and that financial, and you handhold that patient through those two systems, it becomes miraculous for the quality of care and for the cost of care. That was good stuff. There's a lot I want to double click on there. And uh, let's start here. And, and you described this process of a, a medical professional handholding a patient through these very complicated uh, ecosystems, markets. Um, I wanted to ask you this question. So we've heard about the need for greater consumerism for many years. And you know, the way I understand that is if we just give patients more tools to be able to shop for services and the pricing, um, you know, they can become more educated uh, consumers. But when I think about that, it's, it's hard enough to be an educated healthcare consumer under normal circumstances. And then you throw in a very traumatic uh, and very stressful time in your life when you're dealing with a medical condition, either yourself or for a family member. Um, from the patients that you work with, are they really capable of navigating those markets on their own? Or is there a, a better model like you described um, where they need that handholding? It depends, Nicholas. Some people are pretty savvy. The biggest challenge that even the savviest consumer faces is that as of right now today, there is no single consumer reports of healthcare. Right, we've taken a big step forward with the transparency legislation. The challenge is um, your average American consumer, 
thinks that price and quality are directly related when in fact in healthcare price and quality are often on an inverse relationship, right? Because of the whole fee for service model. So we think if you've got Bugatti dollars, you can buy Bugatti quality, but if you've got Yugo dollars, you have to settle for Yugo quality, right? And it is true for televisions and washing machines and everything that we purchase as American consumers, except healthcare. Because of that whole fee-for-service model, the providers who do the procedure the best, the highest quality providers, tend to be the lowest cost providers. And to the American mindset, that makes zero sense. So the problem with transparency legislation is if the normal American even had the capability to go and price shop, which would they pick? The most expensive or the least expensive? Because we're going to think the most expensive is the highest quality and generally the exact opposite is true. Some exceptions to that, of course, right? But generally speaking, highest cost is lowest quality and vice versa. And so getting people to understand that is a huge challenge. The other problem is, this is just my own personal um, observation. I can get a 30, a 20, a teens person to get that and understand it and embrace it. However, those are generally not the people driving your high dollar claims, right? The people driving your high dollar claims are in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And those folks, it's very different in working with them, right? Is a 60 year old gonna turn to their smartphone and an app when they're shopping for a doctor? Probably not, right? Even if they're looking for a primary care doctor when they're completely healthy, but almost certainly not when they've been told that their loved one has pancreatic cancer, right? Oh my God, everybody in America knows that's a death sentence. And are they going to turn to an app? No, they're going to turn to people, right? I think I love, 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 love technology, right? We talked earlier about how we have been doing technological development as an organization and building our own softwares to support custom health plans and patient navigation. We use like 40 different quality cost transparency tools here at AIM on a daily basis, right? I get it. I love technology. The problem is the people that are driving your claims number one, are not of an age group to embrace technology, and number two, are under extreme emotional duress, and they're just not there yet. The younger generations, as they get to 40 and start to fall apart, absolutely, right? And so the challenge for us as an industry is, are we preparing for that? Are we staying ahead of that? But right now, today, this information simply isn't there, even if they want to do it. And number two, what information they can find is not necessarily understandable or usable for them. But hey, if anybody out there wants to kick in some investment dollars, I'd like to create a single consumer reports of healthcare and make it available, but that's a daunting task. There are lots of people that are kind of undertaking pieces and parts of that, which is why we have to have 40 different tools right now, but nobody has a comprehensive one that talks about both cost and quality. You know, the other challenge is how do you define quality, right? We've got a lot out there um, I, I have this test case that I use for 
um, looking at new quality and cost transparency tools, right? Because people call me all the time and say, hey, we'd like you to license our product for looking at physician quality or ambulatory surgery center quality or whatever. And so there's a physician world renowned for creating a procedure where you go through the nose to get into the brain to get tumors that are very deep, right? But he's not the most pleasant man on the planet. Okay, let's just put it that way. But he wrote the textbook, he created the procedure, you know, this is game changing from a medical standpoint, right? I always ask them as they're doing their demo, hey, look up Dr. So-and-so. And I like to see what kind of a quality score comes back. I have rejected quality and cost transparency tools because when the quality score on that physician comes back, it is extremely low. And I say, okay, walk me through how you created that score. And they put too much emphasis and weight on patient perceptions, right? One patient reviewed him, complained that the wallpaper in his waiting room looks like it's from the 70s. And so they gave him one star for that. I'm like, I don't care what the wallpaper looks like. Did you get an infection? Did you die? You know, was the tumor left untreated and, you know, totally boogered up your life forever, right? So patients don't yet understand what they should be looking at, infection, morbidity, mortality, you know, they don't understand what objective quality scores are. Some of our best physicians are great scientists, they're great innovators, they're great at wielding a scalpel, but their bedside manner stinks, right? And vice versa, sometimes their bedside manner is phenomenal, and I say to patients all the time, yeah, he looks like a real Casanova, but his quality score is three out of a hundred. No, 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 let's not do that, right? So until we get people kind of through that educational barrier and get them to understand some of those things, it's going to remain a challenge. And it's, it's definitely turning a battleship, right? Because traditionally we have told patients, abdicate all of that responsibility right? Have the doctor's office deal with the insurance company. And that's the wrong answer, right? In my humble opinion, patients need to get engaged in that process. They are suffering the financial consequences. They are the ones who are suffering the clinical consequences. So why would they not want to be involved? Just getting them over that hump, right? We're a patient-facing product and service here at Ames. So we want patients to do their own pre-certs. I cannot tell you the number of times a day that patients are freaked out by the fact that they're being told to call the insurance, right? Because they see us as the insurance and the number of times that providers call and they'll call and say, hey, I need pre-certification because Nicholas needs to have this MRI. We pull it up. Oh, okay. That pre-certification has already been completed. Here's your authorization number. And instead of going, okay, great. Thank you. They're like, what? Who did that? How did they do that? Why, how can you let patients do their own pre-certs? How do they know the codes? I mean, I'm like, oh my Lord, just say thank you and go on, right? But it's such a foreign concept for patients to be engaged in the process, to be involved in making decisions. It's just, it's a real challenge. And, and I think that's the harder part because even if we gave them the consumer reports of healthcare right now today, they're not of an understanding in how to be involved or that they should even be involved. So what do you think the keys are to educating consumers and, or educating patients to be better consumers and making them aware of what uh, 
what they should look for when determining the quality of a, of a provider or quality of care. Um, I mean, obviously you guys are kind of tackling it, you know, one employer at a time and one patient at a time. Is that the path or is there anything else that we could, you know, be doing? Well, I know there are lots of folks, um, Leapfrog uh, or Group on Health, I can never remember their whole long name, but you know, Leah Bender and her company have been very um, instrumental in making legislative changes and working in Washington, D.C., and I totally commend them for doing that. Um, that's kind of a long-term proposition, right? And so the transparency legislation is great. I think we've got to get some sort of a quality legislation, right? But heaven knows that. Let me tell you this little story, right? So my team says, Deb, we really, really, really need you to talk to this physician, right? He is totally going off. He's very upset. Can you please talk to him? Okay, great. They put him through to me. And he starts the conversation with 15 minutes of screaming, ranting, raving. He is furious because we told a patient his objective quality score and deflected that patient's care to a higher quality physician, okay? And he is ranting and raving and going on and on and on and on. So I listen, right? Let him get it all out. And then I do the pregnant pause. And he goes, are you there? Yes, I'm still here. I just want to caution you. You've heard multiple times that this call is being recorded, correct? He's like, yes. I said, so you do understand that the objective quality tool that we use relies on the data that you self-reported to CMS to, to formulate this objective quality score. So you've just spent 15 minutes screaming at me about how the information that you reported to CMS is wrong. Are you trying to tell me you committed Medicare fraud? Right? So physicians don't even believe their own quality scores that come from their own self-reported data. So you can imagine if we tried to put some sort of legislation into place across the country that said, we're going to measure quality and we're going to do it this way. And these are the metrics that we're going to, and it's got to be published. Oh my word. And then what would happen if all of those, while I love the whole free market medical concept and all the things that are being done there, what would happen if all of those physicians, let's say right now today, we publish the objective quality scores and all of those physicians who had a quality score of less than 20 out of 100 were driven out of business and those physicians no longer existed, right? We've already got a physician shortage I contend we don't necessarily have a physician shortage. We have a quality physician shortage, but whole different issue, right? What would happen if all those physicians no longer were physicians? What happens to those people who were getting care from those physicians? Now, albeit substandard care, you know, not the highest quality care, but at least they were getting some care and now they have zero access. So there are major issues there. So I don't think we can solve it legislatively, right? I think for right now today, we have got to get employers who are the number one sponsor of health insurance in the private side 
to embrace these things. The other thing that I think is with this whole push toward nationalized healthcare, that employers are going to have to blaze that trail because I don't know that there are enough people in elected government positions who understand this healthcare crisis has already been solved. We've got hundreds of employers across the country who've already solved it, right? They're doing platinum plans. Hey, Mr. Employee, if you call the nurse and you follow the nurse's recommendations and advice that are based on the highest quality healthcare, evidence-based clinical guidelines, value-based purchasing, we'll make that free for you. We will waive your deductible and your copay, right? Employers across the country are doing that already and they're performing phenomenally. National average PEPY is over $17,000. Those groups are performing at around $5,000 if they're on a PPO, $2,000 if they're using RVP, right? And those employees are paying zero copay deductible out of pocket, right? They still have some premium, but I'm even beginning to see some of the early adopters of those plans that are making their health plans premium free. There is no employee contribution whatsoever. Free healthcare for all already exists, but the only way you can accomplish that and have it be financially feasible is by getting people to the highest quality healthcare for every condition, not just the catastrophic ones, but for every condition. And that is an intensive process. It requires a lot of nurses on the backside talking to patients on the phone and HR and the broker have to approach the health plan differently, right? Because I send notice to HR all the time. I'm trying to get a hold of Nicholas. He's not responding. I need you to put him on the phone with me. That's different than what they've ever been asked to do in a status quo or BUCA kind of plan. So there's a whole mindset shift that has to happen. And it starts with the employer, usually at the guidance of a savvy advisor. What are the biggest barriers that you've seen um, or hesitations from an employer to adapt the self-funded and this medical managed uh, model? Is it that they just assume that, um, you know, the employees already have access to all these type of tools in their UHC portal or at a portal, or is it, um, you know, kind of mindset, I don't want to get involved in, in my employees health. What are your thoughts on that? From an employer standpoint, there's a variety of common objections, all of which are completely overcomable, right? The whole big brother thing. I'm sorry, you're already big brother, right? OSHA has already forced you to be big brother on the workers comp side. Why not take it a step further and do it on the major medical side, right? So, I mean, that's a common objection. Um, I already get it through my buka. Oh, really? Let's examine that. Show me the quality scores for these doctors, right? Not going to happen. So, I mean, those are kind of common objections. The most common one, though, is my employees are not going to like this. And the answer to that is you're right. There are going to be some employees who don't like this. How much time, energy, and effort can you put into educating them about we love you so much that we want you to get the highest quality healthcare. Here's what high quality healthcare looks like. Here's how we're willing to incentivize it. Would you please stop having your HR department spend their time on things that they are neither qualified nor insured to do? Like, help me find a provider. Your HR department should not be doing that. Why did this claim not get paid? Your HR department should not be dealing with that, right? That's why you have vendors on your med, med, 
major medical to deal with those things. Could you please take those things off of HR's plate and replace them with promotion efforts and engagement efforts and, you know, get that workload redistributed correctly, right? We're not really asking you to do more work. We're asking you to take those things off of your plate and replace them with these things. So that, that's a real common one, you know, well, I'm going to have a line out the door of HR, people upset, right? Yes, every time in the beginning, if, if I'm not making a significant amount of noise in the first three months of your plan, then I have failed miserably, right? Because we do an open enrollment education, and then the plan goes into effect, and then we do ongoing education, 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 education. But there's going to be a Nicholas on your plan who needs an MRI in week two, and his doctor has told him to go to the local hospital. And I've said, whoa, whoa, time out, Nicholas. You can do that if you want. It'll be subject to your deductible, right? Or we can go through green imaging and it will be free. Let me get you connected to green imaging. And then green imaging tells you, yeah, we can help you with that. The facility that we want you to go to is 35 miles away from your home. And Nicholas like, what? The hospital is only 10 miles from my house. Okay, are you willing to drive 25 miles to save $3,000 out of your own pocket, right? So, and then what does Nicholas do? Nicholas goes to HR and says, this new insurance sucks. They want me to go over here to get it for free. And he's not making the connection yet that yes, we're asking you to change behavior and to do something different because this is how we get you free healthcare, right? They want it for free at the hospital. They, they haven't quite gotten their head around the fact that there's some change in behavior, there's some change in purchasing that has to happen. So your HR department has to be prepared for that in those first you know, several months until people go, oh, I could get it at the hospital. I spent almost an hour yesterday with a new client talking about that exact scenario. Patient needs a CT scan, right? Medically necessary and appropriate. We all agree CT scan is the right thing. We say to the patient, you can get it at the hospital if you want, where your doctor wants you to have it. It will be subject to your deductible. You have not yet met your deductible. That CT scan is going to cost you a little over $3,000. Or you can get it through green imaging and it will be free. Well, my doctor said I need it at the hospital. Okay. There's no valid clinical reason that it has to be done at the hospital. Green imaging has the exact same equipment, the exact same test, et cetera, et cetera. What do you want to do? Well, my doctor says I need it at the hospital. So he hasn't gotten the CT scan yet. You know why? Because he is working overtime to try and collect the $3,000 that it's going to cost him to have it at the hospital mm. when he could have it through green imaging for free today, right now, right? Yeah. So that's always going to be a struggle, right? The, they have a relationship with a physician. The physician doesn't know or understand. And by the way, that physician's practice was purchased by that health system that owns the hospital about nine months ago. So even if that doctor knows that it's cheaper somewhere else, he is prohibited by his employer from telling the patient about that option, right? We got rid of pharmacist gag orders. If you want to do some meaningful legislation, let's get rid of physician gag orders. That's a powerful example. Um, and I hope, well, you just gave an example of someone that wasn't willing to do it. But my first thought was I would hope people would drive 25 miles to 
save $3,000 because we've got people that drive across town to save 10 cents off a gallon of gas, you know, but, uh, but it's just, it's just such a, a mindset shift that's required. And then it's one thing to like, say, I guess, in, in theory or talk through the idea, but then when push comes to shove, it's like, all right, I actually need to drive to this facility I'm unfamiliar with and get this done. Um, you kind of see how people are really willing, how, how willing they are to, to think differently. Um, one, of, one of my good friends, Lester, does this really cool thing during open enrollment to that point. He goes in and he knows pretty much who the local sports team that all the employees love is, right? And it's almost never somebody like right around the corner. So he starts out open enrollment, you know, with the pleasantries of, hey, are you all such and such fans? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love them, love them, love them. When's the last time you went to one of their matches or games or whatever? And then they can say, yeah, how much does that, you know, how far is that to get there? And how much does that cost? Oh, it's, you know, an hour drive and it's, you know, three, 400 bucks, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, really? Well, you know, your local hospital charges X number of dollars for a CT scan, but 30 minutes away is a place where you could get it for free. You're willing to drive that far for a sporting event and pay them a huge amount of money. Would you be willing to drive that far to save money, right? But too often, we don't point out to people You'll drive across town to save 10 cents on a gallon of gas, but you won't drive across town to save $3,000 on an MRI. How is that logical? Mm -hmm. I've even had patients say to me, I'm driving past five other doctor's offices to get to this doctor. Tell me how that makes sense. And I walk them through this doctor's quality score and that one and that one and that one and that one and this one, mm -hmm. right? Do you drive past a grocery store that you know has bad produce to get to one that you know has good produce, right? So until we start having conversations with people in layman's terms about what that really looks like, it's gonna stay a challenge. I wanted to ask you, what are some example of, uh, examples of medical conditions which are uh, com commonly misdiagnosed? All of them. All of them, okay. <laughs> All of them. I mean, unfortunately, like 30% of cancers are misdiagnosed, right? How many heart stents are done that are unnecessary and inappropriate? I mean, there's study after study after study. You would be hard pressed to find a medical condition in the Merck manual that doesn't have a misdiagnosis rate of higher than 5%, right? So um, all of them, it's just how severe or how life impacting is that misdiagnosis. So having a second set of eyes, just based on what you just said, seems kind of like table stakes to me that you would want someone else in your corner um, reviewing these things and, and offering a second opinion. Absolutely. Which is why, you know, I insist on it being medical professionals, right? Why we use nurses and doctors here for that interaction, right? So, um, a really good medical management firm is going to incorporate second opinion, right? And I don't know if you all saw this, but the whole Aetna whistleblower issue about where Aetna was issuing denials and saying that physicians were reviewing cases and the physicians in fact were not actually reviewing the cases, right? So that, there's that whole dynamic as well. But here we do not let nurses issue denials. If it doesn't match the gold standard of care, it goes to physician. The majority of the time it goes to a specialty match physician. 
So you're getting essentially a second opinion based on what medical records and information is currently known incorporated into pre-certification. And if it's a really complex case, we will often say to that patient, let's physically get you to a second opinion with an expert physician. Let's get you to a world-renowned place, kind of like the Edison model, right? Um, so you always need a medical professional looking at that medical necessity and appropriateness piece. And you will pick up on a lot of, of errors and um, misdiagnosis or misprescription, right? You'd be amazed at the number of times we're asking about dose route and frequency on a medication. And they're like 50 milligrams. So we're like, uh, you mean 5.0 milligrams? Oh yeah, there is a decimal point in there. Like, oh. Yeah, I mean, it, it's rampant. And that was really the entire purpose of medical management to start with, right? Was to be a helpmate to the providers to catch those kinds of things before they went forward. Unfortunately, right now, the stance of organizations like the AMA is that pre-certification is a waste of time and energy. And in most models, I gotta tell you, I can't necessarily disagree with that. Right? If all you're doing is looking at ICD-10 codes and CPT codes and matching codes, I'm sorry, but a smart computer can do that, right? That should already be built into the EHRs. It, that is a waste of time and energy and money. But true medical management, where you're looking at the clinical indications for the procedure, the alternatives, treatment options, where you're looking at quality scores in place of service issues, where you're looking at plan design issues, there's tremendous value in that, both for the provider, the plan sponsor, and ultimately for the patient. So I get it. Right. Interestingly, I've offered a lot of physicians the opportunity to be gold carded. Right. Are you familiar at all with gold carding and what that means? Mm -mm, I'm not. So Texas just enacted some legislation around the concept of gold carding. We've been offering gold carding for many years here. Gold carding is where a physician is essentially given a free pass. Right. We attach some conditions to that. You have to license and utilize an evidence-based clinical criteria, right? You have to have a prior auth rate of 95% or higher on your past performance. And you have to allow us to come in quarterly and audit cases to ensure that you're still practicing according to those evidence-based guidelines. In cases where you're not following the evidence-based guideline, you need to have documentation that shows the clinical reason that you're coloring outside the lines, right? Because guidelines are guidelines. They're not gospels, right? So there are gonna be times where I'm not drawing a hemoglobin A1C on that patient every three months or every six months because he's a hemophiliac. Duh, clinically that makes sense. So we're gonna color outside of the lines on that case, but you need to have documentation to show that. You wanna know how many physicians have taken us up on our offer to gold card them? I'm going to guess zero. Zero, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. They want to complain about pre-certification and the time spent, blah, 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 blah. But then when you offer them an alternative, they don't want that either. It's like, okay, toddlers, <laughs> let's stop throwing our tantrum here and let, let's figure out how to work together on this. Because really everybody wins when it's done correctly. Right. And I think we've had enough examples. You've cited a few and it seems like we get more and more examples of um, misaligned incentives in the healthcare space on all sides and all stakeholders. And so 
um, you know, it is interesting when people want to push back and have a problem with implementing some of these checks and balances. I think we've, I think enough people have been burned and, and we've seen just the reality of that, of that, that it's time to, to think differently about that and allow some of those. Um, you mentioned, you've mentioned uh, evidence-based clinical standards a couple of times. Um, what do you mean, you know, what do you mean by that? Why is it important? And like, where are you going to determine those uh, standards? I'm actually writing a chapter for a book collaborative that a bunch of us are working on about evidence-based medicine. So that could be its own entire week-long podcast, right? But in a nutshell, what evidence-based medicine is, is taking all of the peer-reviewed published medical journal articles, and there are thousands of them a month, right? Right now, medical knowledge doubles every 70-some days. Wrap your head around that. What we're saying is we're asking physicians who are prescribing medical procedures and services to work in an environment where essentially the, the skill set, the knowledge changes every month and a half, two, month, two months, right? 70 some days. So that's not a real realistic environment. Talk about scalability issues and problems, right? Because your average doctor is getting up in the morning. He's trying to get himself fit and healthy and ready for the day. He's got to make rounds at the hospital. He's got his office where we've put him in a position where he's got to see one patient every 10 minutes to financially make ends meet, right? And he's got to review lab work and he's got to answer questions from the pharmacy and he's got to do all of those things. And then maybe he'd like to actually make his kid's soccer game. And you are asking him to read five medical journal articles a night to stay current in his practice, not sustainable, right? Not, not attainable, let alone sustainable. He might do it every now and then, but not every night. So that's not realistic. Evidence-based medicine does all of that for them. So there are panels of physicians that review all of that current literature and they weight it, right? It was done on three blind white mice in Germany. It gets a weight of zero. It's a double-blind randomized clinical controlled study trial. It gets a weight of five. And then all of those experts come together and they look at all those studies and they create a guideline that says, these are the instances in which the benefits of that procedure or service outweigh the risk of that procedure or service. And then they publish that. Now here's the challenge. Almost every hospital and health system in the United States has access or is licensing that evidence-based guideline, but it's not incorporated into the EHRs currently. There's only one company that is an independent evidence-based clinical criteria in the United States, right? So the last one just got bought by a major carrier. So there used to be two, but carrier bought one of them. So physicians just simply don't have access to it. And even if they have access to it, we're asking them to see one patient every six to 10 minutes in their office. Do they have time? My patients are already complaining that they look at the computer screen more than they look at me. And now we're asking them to use, well, you know, it, it's, it's a horrible situation that we've put bedside practitioners into, right? But that's essentially what it is. It's a guideline that says, here's when the clinical benefits outweigh the risk. So perfect example of that. We've all got them in our circle of friends that couple that is convinced that their fifth grader is gonna to go to the NBA, right? And when little Jack or Jill twist their ankle on the basketball court, what do they want? 
They want two things and they want them right now. They want the sports medicine physician for the local pro team to see their kid. Never mind that that doctor doesn't have any pediatric sports medicine experience. And pediatrics is totally different than adult sports medicine. You've got all those growth plates and all those bones and you know all that stuff going on. So eh, not don't object to you taking your kid to that doctor, but just understand he's not gonna be the best quality doctor. I would rather you go to a pediatric sports medicine. And the second thing that they want is a CT scan right now, right? What happens though, is if they walk into a doctor's office asking for a CT scan, studies show doctor is very likely to say the CT scan is not going to kill them. Me sending them out of here unhappy is very likely to result in me getting sued. So I'm gonna give them what they want. Even though I know that CT scan contains the same amount of radiation as hundreds of plain film x-rays and is gonna increase that kid's risk for developing cancer as an adult, I'm not gonna be around for that. I'm gonna deal with the here and now. I've got these type A parents who want a CT scan. And he doesn't have the time or energy or she to say, wait a minute, a CT scan is really not appropriate right now because here are the risks associated with that. When somebody calls in to get that CT scan pre-certified, we become the bad guys because the risk outweigh the benefits. So we say, time out, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Let's re-examine this. And then we have the conversation about here are the risks associated with that. And it, the risks are too high. They don't outweigh the benefits. The more conservative treatment option would be better. And oh, by the way, the huge amount of swelling is not gonna make for a good image anyway, right? So we try to talk them through that. And that kind of an example is why you've got to do it one-on-one. -on -one. Because even if I use that example during open enrollment, I guarantee you nine months, 12 months, 18 months down the road, when that family experiences that issue, they're not going to remember that example from open enrollment. So you've got to do it right at the point of sickness. But that's kind of what evidence-based medicine is. It's looking out for the clinical quality of care and making sure that the benefits of that procedure or service, the risk associated with that, and every medical procedure or service has risk, right? Even a regular wellness visit at a primary care doctor's office has some risk, albeit very, very low risk, right? But there's risk associated with that, making sure that the benefits of that outweigh the risk of it. Hmm. That's helpful. I appreciate you, appreciate you defining that. Um, I wanted to ask you about this. I'm, I'm amazed as individuals, we just continue to get more and more tools to understand our, our personal health. So I'm thinking like fitness trackers, I can go and spend, you know, $400 a quarter and get my blood drawn and get a bunch of information about my biomarkers. And, uh, you know, there's technology com coming out that we're going to have more uh, innovative ways of uh, monitoring continuous glucose and that type of thing. What are your thoughts on kind of where the market is headed that way? And are those things, those tools useful? And do you see maybe a lot of that diagnostic preventative stuff sh shifting to kind of the home-based um, care where the employee, the consumer, the patient's going to take the lead on that. And then I'm, I'm kind of bringing that information and sharing it with my physician. I absolutely love it. And you didn't mention a lot of the genetic stuff that's happening now. Right too. Yep. Right. So pharmacogenetics in particular has a lot of promise. 
I think the thing that we have to remember on our side of the equation, right, as those that are involved in plan sponsor decisions and helping them with plan design and payment considerations is that we're moving that direction, but those things are still very much in their infancy. And so I love them and I applaud them and I support them. And a lot of my nurses here do them, right? I will openly admit, we get our own lab works done and we go to the doctor and say, look at this. We're kind of a different level of consumer than a lot of people in the general marketplace. And the biggest challenge with those things is making sure that you have someone who understands that patient holistically, right? And who understands the plan design that that person is operating in. And somebody who has been trained to have a mindset of patient free will and autonomy, right? So we say hundreds of times a day here, we don't make treatment decisions. We're looking at whether this meets the medical necessity and appropriateness requirement for plan coverage. I am not saying that you cannot have this procedure or service that you want. I'm saying it does not qualify for coverage by the health plan because benefits do not outweigh the risk. If you want to have that procedure or service, even though the risks are higher than the benefits, you can certainly do that. Let me help you explore some alternative financial resources. Do you have the cash to pay for that out of pocket? Here's about what it would cost. Here are community resources, here are clinical trials, here are grants, pharmaceutical scholarships, foundations, right? You can still do those things it's just that they're not coming out of the financial spend of the health plan bucket, which it begins to start talking about moving away from this entitlement mentality associated with insurance and people thinking that I should be able to get anything I want from my health insurance. And we often will talk about car insurance, right? It has exclusions. Blown tires are not paid for by your car insurance. If you go out and wrap your car around a tree tonight because you're drunk driving, guess what? It's not going to be covered. Your homeowner's insurance. If you burn your house down, it's not going to be replaced by your homeowner's insurance, right? So we talk about moving this health insurance back into the insurance category in the consumer's mind. Because right now, it's not there, right? Across America, it's not there. And the thing that I fear the most with nationalized healthcare is that people think what they will get with nationalized healthcare is 100% coverage of anything and everything that they want and their physician prescribes. And in reality, if you look at every system across the globe that has any form of national healthcare, that is not the case. Mm -hmm. There are, there's still utilization management that happens in those plans. And so until we get people to understand that, I think we're going to have a challenge because the BUCAs have caused that to occur, right? They've covered everything, no questions asked, as a way to increase premiums. And so if that's not sustainable, if that model is not sustainable, and I think most of us across the country would now agree that is the case, right? Then how are we going to create a sustainable model? And the way you do that is by getting people the right care at the right time, in the right place, for the right price. Right. And you've got to do that individual by individual across the spectrum. I love the example of a car because you're right. I mean, 
my tires, my oil changes, my windshield wipers, my car washes. Like I don't, I don't look for outside funding of those things. It's just kind of understood that that's my responsibility. And that's just the, the month to month, uh, you know, maintenance on a, on a car. But if I get an accident, if I have major transmission problems, you know, that type of stuff, I may look for outside financing or in the case of an accident, I may look to the insurance for reimbursement. I love that example. Cause that's how I'm kind of my mindset is shifting towards personal health too, like this diagnostic stuff, these checkups, my gym membership, you know, how do I track and make sure I'm getting enough sleep, you know, my diet, those type of things, really my responsibility. And I may have to pay out of pocket for those things. And then the more major services and procedures, I may have to look for outside financing of those things because of the price tag of it. Um, and I need help with determining the quality, I need help determining where do I need to go, that type of stuff. So I love that example, because I think, it, again, it's that shift in mindset uh, there. So, and actually, the other day, too, I was listening to a pretty well-known, uh, like, researcher and scientist around aging and longevity, and he had that, uh, an experience with his physician where he, he asked, uh, his doctor was not going to run some of the blood work and some of the biomarker testing. And uh, he didn't think it was appropriate. Well, he, he ended up ordering it out of pocket himself, getting all the data, had it in his dashboard. And the next time he went to his physician, he, he spent the entire time going through that with him. So he was interested in the data. He was interested in information. It was useful. It was helpful for the preventative health. Um, but it wasn't necessarily something that he was going to order on his own. The physician was going to order for them. So. Yeah, it's back to that challenge of physicians being able to stay current on all the literature. Right. right. The other challenge that you have in that situation, Nicholas, and most health plans, the exception being those that are working with us, don't give patients any tools or resources other than their primary care physician to have a conversation with about, hey, I'm thinking about this test or this procedure, or I got these results back. What does that mean? You know, a lot of the DPC or direct primary care practices, those physicians have the time and energy to sit down with a savvy consumer like a Nicholas who walks in and says, hey, I did this 23andMe genetic test and it shows I'm at risk for blah, 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 blah. How do I deal with that? Right. But your average PCP under a status quo kind of plan. They don't have the time, energy, or resources to have those conversations. So unless you insert some other medical professionals to be a resource and a support to those patients, now you've got a Nicholas out there with all of this information, who's going to do what? Stress out and worry and freak out and Google, and half of what pops up in Google is not scientifically sound information, right? So there's actually studies published when we first started doing BRCA testing about is it worth it to let people know that they're at risk? How much emotional distress are we causing? If we, for example, most of the plans I work with do not cover prophylactic mastectomy, right? So remember Angelina Jolie had the BRCA testing and she had the prophylactic mastectomy and blah, blah, blah. And we had all these 20 and 30 year olds who were wanting BRCA testing. And BRCA testing was covered, but prophylactic mastectomy is not because your health plan is designed to treat illnesses, not to prophylactically address illnesses, right? And so we had employers who were like, okay, we'll cover BRCA testing. That's the in vogue thing to do. I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. 
How much distress are you going to cause that 23-year-old receptionist who comes back BRCA positive when you tell her you're not going to pay for the mastectomy? Danger, danger, Will Robinson, right? So unless you're totally understanding all of the implications clinically and financially, right. those are not good plan design things to be putting in place. And you've got to insert somebody in the system who is capable of spending 20 minutes with Nicholas going through, okay, here's a good resource for you to read up on everything you need to know about that. And then we're gonna have another conversation in a week or two weeks or a month. And we're gonna talk about practical steps, right? So unless you're putting somebody in the equation to do that, you may actually be doing that person more harm than good. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes me think of, um, I recently ran across a company that was providing services and counselors around genetic testing, which you mentioned. And I was, I don't remember the specific numbers, but it was shocking the amount of new uh, genetic testing that was coming out every day. And that was essentially their message is, hey, like not all of these are evidence-based. There's a lot for patients to weed through. We don't want to create a situation where someone runs one of these and now they're thinking that, oh, I'm, I'm, I have a high chance for this and they're worried about it. So let us help you. Um, you know, think through which ones should be covered and which ones are the most useful to offer. So I see some, some similarities there. I wanted to ask you, um, so for like employers, health plans, like what are some of those high cost medical procedures that it's like just table stakes that the plan, we need to be shopping these, we need to be looking around for the highest quality and the best price. Like what are a few examples of those big ticket items that if I don't, I wake up one day and I got you know, a 50, 100,000, you know, dollar claim hitting my plan? So depends on your plan, depends on your average age, depends on your geographic location, it depends on your industry. And that's one of the reasons that you really, really, really must have access to your data. Claims data mining is going to be absolutely critical in helping you formulate those decisions. If you are 2,500 employee lives or bigger, then you will probably start to fall along national prevalences and trends, okay? I think that it's safe to say that every employer needs to have a specialized solution for cancer. We happen to incorporate that into what we do. But if you're an employer with 75 employee lives, you may have zero cancer cases, right? So everybody needs something for cancer. I would say everybody needs something for musculoskeletal problems, pain management, a high area of misdiagnosis, high area of coloring outside the lines when it comes to evidence-based clinical criteria, high um, motivation for providers to keep doing Band-Aids as opposed to addressing root cause, right? So musculoskeletal, especially back pain, I think it's safe to say every employer needs to have a solution that is, is well-versed at handling that. Again, something that we incorporate into what we do. NICU babies, right? Big area, high cost, lifelong impact. Got to make sure that those kids are getting the highest quality care, that they're transitioning between levels of care timely, that discharge planning is happening at the appropriate time, and that we're getting them home at the right time, right? That's a big one, right? But again, how many of those are you going to have in your population? If your average age is 45, probably not a huge number, right? So 
Every group is going to be different. Claims data mining is critical. I would add to that and predictive risk modeling because medical artificial intelligence already exists. So if I can get two years worth of claims data, I can tell you where next year's spend is going to be with a very, very, very high degree of accuracy down to the individual belly button. I can tell you next year, Nicholas's claim spend is going to be $18,000, and I will be pretty doggone close to accurate on that, right? The American Society of Actuaries has actually validated the claims data mining and predictive risk modeling tool that we use. So I can tell a group next year, your claims dollars are going to be between this and this. I have never in over 17 years of doing this had a group that does not fall within that parameter on their spend. Never, I've never had it happen. With the exception being new groups that come on and we analyze their data and we say next year, your claim spend is going to be this. If you do nothing, if you undertake these medical management strategies, these patient education, these patient engagement strategies, then we can drive your claims cost down to this level, this level, this level. Where do you want it to go, right? So what is your PEPY? What do you want it to be? Where are we going with this? And what kind of impact are we able and willing to make with your population? Because the, the trade-off for PEPY is noise, right? We have to do all kinds of patient education. There's going to be disruption. If you want to take your PEPY to $2,000, I can do that and I can do it very rapidly, but there's going to be a very high level of noise associated with it. Are you as an employer okay with that? So there are strategies that we can predict that for your population, knowing exactly what's going on. The challenge has traditionally been with the BUCA plans, with status quo plans, getting the data. So there are other ways around that. There are now EOB scrubbers and there are several different firms that can, can essentially reverse engineer that data, right? So awesome. The challenge with some of those, the cautionary tale there is, you will often find people in that population that will prevent you from being viable for self-funding right now today, unless you get some clinical underwriting validation of that. So in those scenarios, what we typically do is have our nurses engage with those patients and have a conversation so that we can accurately reflect the diagnosis the prognosis, the treatment plan, the anticipated costs. And so you can then take that additional data back to the underwriters. So we had one not too long ago where based on the EOB scrubber, it looked like this person was a potential transplant, right? And when we looked at it, we're like, yeah, transplant could be a treatment option for that condition, but let me have a conversation with this patient. And as we called and we we're talking with him, we said, does anybody ever mention transplant to you and whether that might be in your future? He's like, yeah, my doctor talked about it, but I'm never going to do that. Oh, okay. Why not? Well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I would never agree to a transplant. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about how you're going to manage it short of transplant, right? As soon as we took that information back to the underwriter, that $250,000 laser that they wanted to put on that person disappeared. They knew instantly, okay, he's never going to get a transplant, right? It's just not going to happen. So why would we laser him? And here's the challenge. When stop loss carriers 
don't laser somebody, they usually account for it in the premium. So you can either take the laser or take a higher premium. In this case, neither happened, right? Because they know his treatment plan does not include transplant and here's why. So it's great to get that data, but you also need somebody who has a relationship and a rapport with that patient or who is able to quickly develop that to provide true clinical underwriting behind it. Right. You know, we've talked about technology a few times and with what you just said, I'm just more and more convinced that the technology, we're not just waiting on one piece of technology or one app that's just going to solve this whole, whole problem. You know, um, it can make the buying of certain services easier, uh, maybe lower cost, but really the technology is going to be to facilitate these type of conversations. And, um, and the predictive analytics thing is really interesting as well. I've been thinking a lot about that. And this has come up a few times in these conversations because we're at a point where data storage is so cheap, like no industry lacks data really at the end of the day. It's what do I do with all this data that I have? And I'm just collecting more and more and more of it. Um, so it's a great problem. It's a great uh, thing to have, but how do I weed through it and how do I make predictions around it? So that piece is, uh, is really interesting. Yeah, you know, one of the challenges, Nicholas, in our industry is a lot of organizations have clinical expertise. A lot of organizations have financial expertise, but finding organizations that marry together the clinical and the financial, that's a challenge, right? So when I think about um, nurses like me in the world, right, at least in the United States, who can very um, astutely marry together clinical and financial, I'm guessing there are, you know, definitely less than 100, right? I could probably, if you really, really pushed me, name 10, right? The exception, but, not the rule. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wanted, uh, I was thinking the other day, I, I, I kind of shuddered to think about how many people um, died at home uh, over the past 18 months because they had a serious medical condition and they were afraid to, you know, they're afraid to go to the hospital out of fear of con contracting uh, COVID. Um, and I think we'll get more clarity around those numbers as time goes on. But um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, we also are predicting that there was a high degree of people that put off preventative care and routine checkups because of fear of contracted COVID or they couldn't get in to see their doctor. Um, what are you seeing on, on your end and, and what have been the consequences of people putting off that preventative care? Yeah, I don't know that we have a clear picture yet on the consequences question. I think only time will tell with that. Mm -hmm. I can tell you across our book of business that there was only a very, very short pause, right? So at that, I don't know, two, three month period of time where the federal government was saying elective procedures and services must be halted. But the day that that got released, we had a list of all of the patients who had been put on pause and we outreached to all of them and we got all of them scheduled it in. So very few of our patients skipped those kinds of things. They delayed them for a very, very short period of time. Now we're kind of going through some of that right now because individual health systems have chosen to pause things because of bed access and that kind of thing. Um, but in most of those instances, if the patient is willing, we're able to locate an alternative provider outside of that system, right? Colonoscopies, shouldn't be getting those at a hospital anyway, in most circumstances, right? Unless you're a hemophiliac, in which case definitely get it at the hospital. 
right? But in most circumstances, there are independent ambulatory surgery centers and endoscopy centers that you can get those done at that are not impacted by that. So again, our patients, because they have a nurse who is navigating them through both the health delivery and the health plan system, we haven't seen a, a huge impact of that. Um, it is interesting though, uh, because we do see a lot of the general population not having that same experience. And I do fear a bit for those patients. I mean, I have a lot of relatives in very rural areas who are still for all intents and purposes on lockdown, right? They're not going anywhere. They're not going, they're not socializing. I worry as much about the impact of loneliness and depression in that scenario as I do about, you know, my 80 year old mom not getting her mammogram. Okay, something else is gonna kill her before breast cancer anyway, right? But so I, I worry more about that impact clinically because what happens when you have loneliness and depression is everything else is worse, right? You have compliance issues with medication. You have all kinds of things going on because of that isolation factor. I've seen it, especially in the elderly. I've also seen it, especially in the teenage population, right? We have had a plethora of teens that are suicidal, that are having severe mental health issues because of the isolation. So Yes, I want you to get your colonoscopy. Yes, I want you to get your mammograms. Yes, I want you to do those things. I'm less worried about you delaying those than I am about you being isolated and severely depressed and you know, not functioning well. When you're isolated and depressed and you're not getting up and moving and you're not socializing and you're not interacting and you've lost your sense of purpose, that has an immediate negative impact. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think time will tell. And it definitely seems like something over the last 18 months was, wasn't, I mean, talked about some, I think as more as the, the pandemic has, has gone on, but not probably something that we talked about enough of, of the reality and the clinical uh, impacts of that. And you know, I've read a couple of places too, which I never thought much about was I, I'm realizing more and more. And I've read a couple of places that a lot of times your home environment, your family structure has a bigger impact on your health and your well-being than your biomarkers or something that you develop, you know, genetically, which is really interesting to think about. So the geeky term for that is social determinants of health. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so if you wanted to Google something and have your mind totally blown, Google that social determinants of health, right? The neighborhood that you live in dictates your access to fresh produce. It's crazy, right? And so we're all on this five a day campaign, right? How long has that been going on? But we have these food deserts that exist. And who's asking that question, right? It's a question that we do as part of our basic assessment, right? When we're getting to know a patient, but if they don't have access, how do we fix that? And the bigger question, and now you're getting into, let's say somebody has been a customer and working with us for five years. Right. And we start having conversations with them about, you know, transportation is a major issue in your population. And they go to that hospital because it's on the bus line. And could we have a small fund to pay for Uber to take them to a better hospital? Right. Um, your people are not eating well 
They're not getting their five a day because your location attracts people from this geographic market and you're in a food desert. Could you in HR spend some time getting a farmer's market to come operate once a month in your parking lot, right? Those are things that are gonna have massive impact on quality of life, but also cost of care. Right, and we and talked so, a little, and we talked a little about the bit, the digital piece too, and, and you mentioned some of the older population that may not be as uh, tech savvy. Um, I had a conversation recently, and we talked a little bit about that. And you know, I, I've had the idea of, and it's good to hear you're having these conversations. I'm a little surprised that it's year five, but I think that's just the reality of it, right? We've got to get some of these other things in, in place. Um, and the infrastructure built out, but, you know, around that digital literacy pieces, you know, maybe as an employer, the way I help my employees get access to high quality care and um, maybe more home-based care where they feel more comfortable is I have to purchase them an iPhone, a, um, an iPad um, with maybe cellular data because they don't have strong broadband connection. Um, and, you know, maybe I give that to them, but I have to also educate them and teach them, provide resources about how do I use this? You know, how do I text on here? How do I access the app? So um, it's just interesting to think about those like kind of out of the box. And that, again, that shift in mindset, the way you have to think about some of these things. So employers are doing more and more of that, Nicholas. And I will tell you that those efforts are most successful when you do something like a one-on-one -on -one enrollment. So those who don't know him, look up Eric Silverman. His company does one-on-one -on -one enrollments and they will literally sit down and go, okay, here's your smartphone. This is where you go to get the app. Let me help you download the app. Okay, let's log into the app, right? Because like we're integrated into benefits apps, right? Benazon being one of them that we absolutely love and adore. Except if the person doesn't know how to get it onto their phone, they're never going to use it. Here, let me add the icon to your home screen. You've got to have somebody who does that. And you can do that during open enrollment. And guess what? They will use it. Even though they're over 40, they will use it because you showed them and it's right there and it's convenient and it's easy. But if you don't spend that time and energy to show them it's not gonna work. Just saying, hey, you have access to a benefits app, go download it from the benefits store or whatever. They're not gonna do that. I, honestly, I'm 50 something and I ask my millennial, okay, they said I need to download this app. Will you help me, right? And I'm a pretty tech savvy person. So you've got to make those kinds of investments. And you're right, it is horrible that it's year five plus that that's happening in employers. The good news is there's so much low hanging fruit to pick in years one through four that doing those kinds of things, because also that app does have a price, right? So in years one through four, we have created such a huge ROI. I don't know if you know this, but self-funded plans, there are federal regulations that dictate the maximum amount that they can have set aside in a, a reserve. So like if you have more than three years of claims set aside in your reserve, you either got to stop contributing, which you don't want to do because of the tax advantages, or you got to start spending. Guess what? Start spending, right? Get a benefits app, get an Uber account, get a walking track around your campus, right? Do those things with that financial reserve. Those things have a longer ROI, right? So if you follow Al Lewis and why nobody believes the numbers and all that, you understand that those things are an investment that have an intangible return on investment. Five years from now, your population will be healthier. 
and you will have lower claims cost as a result, but it's all immeasurable, right? So that's why most, most employers are gonna pick all that low hanging fruit, get all that ROI first. And now you've got a positive vicious cycle going that you can continue. I want to get your thoughts on this and then we'll, uh, then we'll wrap up. Um, you know, it's been brought to my attention that certain segments of the population, definitely more uh, poverty stricken areas, that there is actually a, they may don't have access to the level of, to high quality care and affordable care. But then even if they did, there's like a hesitancy with the medical community. And I've heard of uh, some models in, um, that have been utilized like in Africa, where you have like this community health manager, uh, non-physician, but they have a lot of tools and resources to help some of the preventative um, care within the community. Um, what are your thoughts on that model? And, um, you know, maybe trying to roll that out to different segments of the, of the population. That exists in the United States. So um, we have been very active in the Kojic church population, traditionally African-American. And we have spent some considerable time and energy educating barbers and hairdressers, right? Because in that community, it's common to go to those environments. It's a social experience going into those environments. And those people are um, recognize the barber, the hairdresser for having a higher level of understanding. They also have a relationship with the patient. So in the African-American community, if you're over 50, your barber might talk to you about a PSA and what it is and why you shouldn't be afraid of having it done, right? And so, yes, those efforts are happening all in that social determinants of health right here in the United States. And example after example after example. We have other examples in the Native um, American community, right? Um, we have a group in Alaska that has uh, unique cultural issues there, right? It's back to that original, you know, we've done a good job of going full circle here, Nicholas, customized solutions for each individual group because their culture within that organization is important. We have a client whose primary language is Punjabi. When they do open enrollment meetings, they have a curtain down the middle of the room and the women are on one side and the men are on the other side. They have a male person do the open enrollment meeting on the male side and a female on the female side because that's their culture, right? We have to be respectful of people's free will, their autonomy, their social determinants of health, their psychosocial issues. And that's why nurses are perfectly poised to be that conduit because we are formally trained during nursing school to recognize and respect and appreciate those issues and to not push our will onto a patient, right? I might know that getting a PTCA at this facility is inferior because they don't have open heart capabilities. And if you were me or my spouse or my child, you would be going here. If you're my mom, you wouldn't be going here because she won't do it. She still has that free will and that autonomy to go where she wants to go to get it. And I have to be respectful and appreciative of that, right? So that is such a huge issue across healthcare and we so often make assumptions about people 
right? Some people live in food deserts, not out of necessity, but by choice, right? We've got a client that essentially is a bunch of urban missionaries and they, they have the means to travel to get that. Other patients don't. So how do we bring it to them? It, it is the great conundrum of healthcare in America right now. We've done okay. Hopefully more places will start to, to adhere to the transparency legislation. We've got to get some quality legislation going and we've got to pay more attention to social determinants of health. Well, Nurse Deb, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm more convinced it's going to, going to take a village to um, improve things in our healthcare system. But, you know, I'm optimistic and, and encouraged that we have folks like yourself that are um, very knowledgeable, willing to share, willing to educate. And uh, I know every time I've, I've talked to you, have have learned learned a lot. So I really appreciate you making the time. I appreciate you having me. If there's anything we can do to help you or any of your listeners, don't hesitate to look us up. Give us a call. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Um, if people wanted to connect with you or had any questions, where's the best place for them to, to do that and connect with you? Yeah, probably the best and easiest place is to visit our website, which is AIM, like Mary, dash like the minus sign, M.com. There's a plethora of information there. There's also a button to meet or talk with Nurse Deb where they can self schedule. So if any question I can answer or any help I can provide, I'm happy to do it. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much, Deb. Talk to you soon. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll tune into future episodes. I'll be posting those on my LinkedIn and Twitter pages, both at Nicholas Grimm. If you have any feedback about the show or uh, suggestions for future guests, you can email me at email at Nicholas, N-I-C-K-O-L-A-S-C.com. Until then and next time, hope you have a great day.